Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just €29, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight, Climate and Energy, discussing all things energy transition. I'm David Weston and with me once again are Michaela Hall of Agora Energy Vendor and Jan Rosenout from the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi team, have you recovered from our most recent Brussels get-together? I haven't. I'm still, I, I'm, I'm still very, very tired. It was uh, a great day, but I think I, I left the house at eight and came back uh, just before midnight uh, after the dinner. So it was a was an excellent conference, and I can't wait to see the recording being streamed. Same here. But uh, yeah, no, we'll have a good discussion today anyhow. But yeah, indeed, I was also exhausted. How long was it? Three days ago, right? Yeah. It must feel like a lifetime ago. So today we're discussing cost of renewables, and the overwhelming narrative facing renewables today is that they are getting cheaper. Uh, especially compared to their fossil fuel counterparts. But as the old adage goes, nothing in this world is free. So just how cheap can renewables become and other forms of low-carbon technology? And is there such a thing as too cheap? Our guest this week is Michael Taylor, Senior Analyst of the International Renewable Energy Agency and Head of the Agency Renewable Cost Team. Michael, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Dave. Uh, So you recently just put out your latest cost analysis on uh, renewables. Could you maybe just give us the headlines? Yep. Absolutely. For the, report. Uh, so the first thing to say is this is something that the the agency has been doing for over a decade now, and I've had the pleasure of of being involved from day one. So it's a little bit my baby. So I'm happy to be here and share the insights. Uh, the headline is indeed that that a little bit surprisingly, in real terms, the costs of solar and wind uh, fell in 2022, despite. Um, as everyone is aware, cost inflation across the economy. But it's a quite nuanced story, and we can talk about that in a little bit more detail, uh, I'm sure, as we go through. But essentially, the headline was that um, for onshore wind and solar PV, we saw a, a, a reduction of um, for solar PV in the range of 2 to 3% uh, and a 5% for, for, for onshore wind uh, compared to 2021. Uh, and these are for the projects that are commissioned in each year. And what we do is try to actually go through and find the individual um, real-world project costs and, when possible, also their lifetime expected capacity factors. Uh, so the idea here is that by having a volume of data, we can be very transparent about what is happening in terms of the costs and people can have confidence or have a better understanding of should they have confidence in the numbers and where they're weaker. And uh, But... You know, it wasn't all plain sailing, not, you know, quite a lot of nuance that we can go into. Offshore wind ticked up a little bit. This was a little bit uh, a result of a drop in the share of China in the overall global deployment. Uh, And also some, a number of projects uh, which were in newer offshore wind markets that had slightly higher cost structures. So there was a bit of an uptick. I think... When people are thinking about the idea that costs fell in 2022, there's a couple of important things to remember. First of all, because we have a time series of data, 
generally starting in 2010, which coincides more or less with the growth uh, of utility-scale solar PV. Uh, and also, when we started this process in 2012, that was about f- as far back as we could go and get reliable data. So we put that into real terms, that is to say, adjusting for inflation. So when I said that you know solar PV fell 2% in real terms, that you have to remember that anything less than a 7% nominal increase was actually a reduction um, in real terms. Uh, so so that is, for many years when we had this low inflation environment of kind of 2%, you know, that kind of nuance we didn't have to really go over. But here there's a little bit of a disconnect from what people see and what we're reporting, and that's a little bit what's happening here. So... Uh, and we can talk a little bit about that in more detail. So the cost inflation in the industry is real, uh, but there's some lagging indicators, right? So projects are not instantaneously um, conceived and put into place. And so we have lagging indicators in the industry. So equipment costs, uh, depending whether that's a PV module uh, or a wind turbine, the contracts can, for those can be signed. You know, For PV, it can be very close. Um, so we can see, we'll talk about that. There's a bit more, when we talk about the nuance of what happened, there's more increase in solar PV than onshore wind, where the contracts, the project development and construction times are longer, and you're likely signing contracts perhaps a year or 18 months. So there's a lag between this pass-through. And then there's your more immediate costs, which might go up, you know, when you're talking about the balance of, of hardware, you know, so for racking and mounting for for PV modules, where you're very exposed to current commodity prices. Uh, so it's, you know, cost fell, but it's quite a nuanced um, story. If I may come in, uh, I was surprised also because I was under the assumption that cost of capital are on the rise everywhere. That's also part of your calculation for these projects, right? Yeah. And despite that, costs went down. Or yes. is there a different picture for different regions then? Because uh, you, you offer a global figure. Yeah. So what we saw in 2022 was quite a sharp spike in interest rates, right? And again, the financial investment decision, which is often relatively close to the when financing is actually signed on. Again, this is a lagging indicator. Uh, so uh, we have much poorer real-time data about weighted average cost of capital. So during the pandemic, actually, we did a project with ETH Zurich and IEA Wind, part of their technology collaboration project, to survey what cost of capital data. So we have now a database um, for onshore wind, solar PV, and offshore wind uh, of surveyed weighted average cost of capital and the components thereof. So cost of debt, cost of equity, debt to equity ratio. Uh, So that allows us to have a, you know, that's one more piece of a puzzle to have a more robust LCOE Act estimate. And that figure, and we can talk about perhaps what might happen in 2023 commission projects later on, but one of the big drivers in what will happen this year is that cost of capital increase flowing through. Michael, I'd just like to do a little detour before we go deeper into the cost discussion, which is fascinating. And I have some some questions for you there too. Um, but just maybe to step step back from that for um, a couple of minutes, you know, most of our listeners will have come across IRENA 
in the past uh, in in their work if they work in the energy sector it's it's pretty much unavoidable that you at some point stumble um, over a report that Arena has produced um, or maybe a presentation at an event. Uh, but could you just explain to our listeners what Irina does uh, and maybe sort of where it comes from, its origins, so we have a we have a better idea sort of what, what your organization does sure. and how it fits into the broader space? Because also there's, of course, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, and they also post their own figures. So it'd be interesting to just see how you fit into this landscape of different policy actors, international organizations. Yeah, so very quick overview. You know, we were conceived um, to essentially provide a voice which was focused on renewable energy uh, and not, if you like, um, distracted or having the competing interests of, say, the IEA, right? So where they cover all fuels, um, energy efficiency, and they have a very, I mean, their mandate came essentially from a fossil, the first oil shocks, right? And their their first and job and still one of their very important jobs is managing the physical stocks. So there was a there was a feeling in the international community, essentially member our, our today's member states, uh, that there needed to be a voice, a clear voice uh, for renewables. So our mandate is super simple. It's to accelerate the sustainable deployment of all forms of renewable energy. With a little comma that says taking into account energy efficiency, because If we can improve energy efficiency, we, for the same deployment of renewables, we get a higher penetration in the overall energy supply. So very simple. And so essentially what we do, the, the simple mandate hides a very difficult job because we have more member states um, than core staff. So we're at about 165 member states. So we're going close to near universal membership. So we have a tough job because we have member states with a very wide range of needs and institutional capabilities. And we have to a little bit be something to everyone within that. Um, and But we have a very clear mandate, I think, which helps, I think, with our focus. Yeah. So we work for you, essentially. You know, there's, there's very few people I do not essentially work for globally at this point in time. That's great to hear. <laughs> yeah. so I'm, I'm, I'm a bit stressed. I've got a big job to do. <laughs> but um, I re I still remember when Irina was set up, and I remember at the time Claude Turmes yeah. super happy about this, you know. But in but recently, I think the IEA has uh, has become quite uh, quite a promoter of renewables, and also basically this year, I remember had a headline. When was it? Just before the summer break. Um, saying that over the last two years, renewables saved the European consumer 100 billion. So um, I think they have changed a lot. So where are the nuances like in the communication on renewables that you provide and that they provide maybe? Or is it increasingly merging? Well, I, well, I, think, I think effectively what we've seen is an, a convergence, right? Or a, uh, and a perhaps a conversion You know, so full disclosure, I used to work for the International Energy Agency. Yeah, I saw but, that. Yeah, yeah so I, I, I do have a little bit of understanding of the dynamics here. And I think the best um, kind of perhaps analogy I can say is that when I used to work at the IEA, when we first released the Energy Technology Perspectives Report, that dragged the debate within IEA member states, like 
a bit forward in terms of the energy transition. So we shifted it. And so I think if, if I want to be generous about Irina's impact, I think we've had the same, that same impact um, with not just with the IEA, but a lot of other, um, you know, perhaps commentators or institutions within the energy and the climate and transition space. And we've done that. We've tried to do that by providing an evidence-based approach. We've focused on the positive elements of the renewables, the economic, the environmental, uh, and the socioeconomic benefits. Um, you have to remember for many of our poorer member states, the socioeconomic benefits are almost uh, are the primary driver. So it's not necessarily about the environmental aspect at all. It's about getting you know clean, reliable energy to their citizens. So you know, I think that you know, I think there's there's two elements to it. We can't claim too much credit. I mean, we did. I think we did do things that helped, but also the reality has shifted. Right? It's difficult to deny the at this point in time, you know, the solid economic, environmental, and socioeconomic benefits of renewable energy. You have to try really hard to play that down. Um, and it's not to say the energy transition is easy or a slam dunk. There's a lot of work to be done. We can see that. Um, but if you like, the, the, the core underlying business case for renewables is now very, very strong. Michael, you, you in effect already answered what I wanted to ask you next, which is you know, how has the story of renewables changed over the course of your career? You, you've worked in this space for more than a couple of decades. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, you know, I remember very well when I first started working on renewables, which was uh, about 20 years ago. And uh, you, the, the cost differential between fossil generators, uh, wind and solar was still very, very vast. Um, and the only way how you could justify widespread deployment of renewables was to point to externalities and to sort of environmental economics analysis. But that has really changed, hasn't it? And um, um, e even in, in if, if you ignore that completely, um, I mean, my understanding is that in, in, in many markets in the world now, actually building wind or solar is the cheapest source of generation. Uh, maybe it's even an arena map, but I recently saw a map uh, where you can see the cheapest source of generation in each country in the world. Um, I think blue was wind and yellow was solar, and most of it was yellow and blue, basically. So could you just talk us a little bit more sort of about that, that, that success story and how, you know, what has happened? Why have we seen uh, costs come down so dramatically? You know, has this exceeded your expectations when you started to work in the sector? Um, I'm just curious to sort of hear your yeah, yeah, sure. broad reflections on that. Yeah. Well, I'm always happy to take a trip down memory lane as well. So uh, so I, I guess I was a little bit lucky in this respect in that, you know, when I first started doing energy sector modeling, which was my introduction to the energy sector in New Zealand in 1993, you know, hydro and even geothermal at that point was, you know, the bedrock of the low-cost supply. So I had that kind of exposure, I guess, to the idea that not all renewables, you know, are necessarily very expensive. Uh, but I had a good understanding then of some of the complexities as well, you know, of, of how that all fits together when you start to move to, to solar and wind. And, and I think it was very easy, particularly in the, you know, between 2000 and 2010 to look particularly at solar PV and say, this is very expensive, you know, and has a very low capacity factor. How does this work? And that was the mainstream view 
in, in most of the energy sector, apart from those that were really working often more on the technology side and they could see a clear pathway, right, that were perhaps seemed improbable to us. Not necessarily because we didn't believe what they were saying, but we didn't think we'd get enough deployment, actually. So we understood, you know, it, it was understood that there was a learning curve, but the costs just seemed so high that we didn't really believe that governments would, you know, do enough of the hard work to bring down the costs. Um, and so the narrative, you know, in the period after the, you know, the great financial crisis, you know, 2008, 2009, the the investments that were made in, you know, in the US, like that, that really helped to start like a utility scale solar PV market in some respects, you know, started to, it started to gain momentum. Um, but, you know, the, that was still at the stage, like I can remember in 2012, where we'd talk about the cost, but then we'd also say, but yes, there are all these other benefits and you can use it off grid. Um, and please think about air pollution and, you know, local jobs and stuff like that. So it was a really hard sell. Um, and so I've learned one thing with renewables is that, like, conventional wisdom is an, a very poor guide to what is going to happen in the next three to five years. And essentially every time we've forced ourselves, even with an IRENA, to go out of our comfort zone, we've been wrong. And usually we've underestimated either the deployment or the cost reduction, and so far, both of those at the same time. Uh, so there are some lessons to be taken from that. So there's a system, systemic failure, essentially, when considering small modular technologies with relatively low barriers to, to manufacturing entry uh, that can be scaled at a global level. Um, so... If we look at those kind of technologies and we see what happened with solar and wind, right? So PV, we calculated on a, uh, the learning rate for the LCOE 2010 to 2022 is 39% learning rate. Um, this kind of cost deflation, you really don't see outside of, you know, say computers or, you know, electronic, cam you know, digital cameras, right? Uh, so... There's some lessons for us from that that we can take to the next, you know, the next technologies we need in the energy transition and say, look, if there are characteristics like what we've systematically failed to, to, to estimate previously accurately, you can be bold because you can have high confidence, actually, that there's going to be a very steep learning curve once you get to a certain, you know, level. I think... Things have changed dramatically, but we still haven't internalized the lessons from what has happened. We're just still a little bit in the stage of saying, this is great, you know, um, but we haven't internalized quite yet the lessons from that. And so that's kind of, kind of what we're trying to do now when we talk about the world energy transition outlook, which we also do, uh, you know, talking about the, the level of ambition, um, getting away from this, it's very costly narrative because what we found is that if you actually go hard on the deployment, you have the right ecosystem in place for the institutional and regulatory arrangements. You, you fund the learning investments, those will pay off. And it won't work in every sector for every technology that we need for the energy transition, but I like to think of it a little bit about like the electricity system, right? So, you know, for decades, well, since, since the existence of the electricity system, 
on average, we don't pay a lot. But for a little bit of the year, we pay an obscene amount of money. And if we think of the energy transition like that, if you're worried about the last 5 or 10% costing a fortune, you're missing the point a little bit. You know, it's the average cost and the benefits. You know, we, we still have a tendency to focus just on cost because it's kind of a little bit easier to calculate, actually. And the benefits often are a bit more harder to calculate. There's more uncertainty. And people tend to discount them as a result. It's kind of a, you know, a bit of a cognitive dis dissonance that comes from, if you like, the confidence, right, we can have. Um, yeah, on your point, Michael, uh, I saw yesterday on Twitter that you don't like so much anymore. I also saw. <laughs> uh, an energy economist, Leon Hicht from Germany, I would say he's quite the market poorest in a way as an energy economist yes. and he said the biggest mistake I have been making over the past 15 years is to underestimate the cost development of PV just like that yeah. and yeah yeah and I you know I saw I follow Leon as well and I've known him for a number of years um, yeah and so what I'm saying is that we need to learn from that right and some of us have have got to that point earlier than others, but the important thing we, you know, it's like in life, right? You know, we need to learn from that mistake and understand that there is a systemic bias in how we're, you know, thinking about what the energy transition will look like and cost and the timescale. Uh, and so, you know, that's an opportunity uh, and it's one we're trying to highlight. I mean, it's not just cost, it's also the, the penetration, of course, of renewables. Um, I'm, there's an infamous advert by the German utilities from the early 1990s. I'm sure you've come across on social media. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just um, uh, priceless, really, uh, where they say renewables can only ever provide something like 4% uh, to electricity generation. Um, and more is just is, is not possible, you know, physically not possible. The last time I checked in Germany, I think renewables provided more than 50% uh, to the total generation, uh, not in capacity, because I think that's often in, you know, whenever you present capacity figures, people will say, oh, that's capacity, not generation, but it's in generation terms, half of all German electricity actually came from renewables in the first half of this year. So again, we, we, we don't just underestimate the cost reductions that can happen, but also the pace of deployment, I think, has been vastly underestimated by by many analysts, um, including the IEA. I think that is Alka Hoekstra, who consistently develops these graphs where he shows projections for renewables yeah. from the IEA and real deployment. And all the projections are really quite conservative and deployment goes up an exponential curve. Uh, so again, I guess this comes back to your point, Michael, that we, we are not very good at understanding technologies that can be replicated very, very rapidly in the energy space compared to those where you buy um, you know, very expensive pieces of equipment and you, you, you construct centralized assets for generation. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a little bit, you know, there's, there's a little bit this bias, right, that you, when you're in your domain and you've worked in that for a long time, your, your world shrinks to the boundaries essentially of what you you know, you know, and, and, and you might know you can push these things a little bit. Um, but but you do have this, you know, this difficulty in envisaging a completely different system, right? And, and it's, again, it's the same problem 
right? That that if you don't try, you won't know what the limits are. And I think it's the same analogy can be used, if you like, for the level of penetration, right? Because in some ways, you know, if, if we want to talk about some bad faith actors in this space, you know, the discussion, a lot of it now is not, okay, so renewables are cheap, but they're never going to be able to achieve these very high levels of penetration. So we're still going to need to invest in gas and all, gas-fired power plants and coal-fired plants. We're still going to need pipelines and LNG. And so essentially, that's either a bad faith argument or it's, a, a, again, a lack of learning from what's happened already, right? So once you get to a certain point, there is an economic, um, you know, I don't like, I'm, I'm an economist by training, um, but, you know, you have to remember that perfect competition essentially doesn't exist. So there's always a role for regulation. The political economy is very important. Right. And so, you know, you have to take that feedback into account, um, both with the political economy, which I think where the IEA fell down a little bit with their modeling is that it's an energy model. They don't factor in the fact as deployment increases, costs fall, performance improves, there's more buy in from the political economy that supports the same process over and over again. And so that's a, that's a failing with the models that to, to defining your, your vision just on that. And then the other thing to your point really is that, you know, people will find a way. If we're not doing enough on the grid side, people will find a way because there's a compelling economic case, right? So, you know, Everybody talks about the fact that but we need battery storage, you know, for for the flexibility, right? But in Australia, they're building storage next to, to power plants because they can't get a decent grid connection, you know. So people are finding a way to get involved, and then there are co-benefits that are also there as well for the energy system as a whole. So there's you can slow down, you can slow the thing down at this stage. You know, people are going to find a way, I think, is the argument. And so the lack of ambition is really, you know, if, if that's your, your vision for the future, you know, it's probably wrong. I have to admit, I haven't read your report yet, but what I remember from my previous job in convincing people about renewables um, was very often this, that I felt you can only convince them of the full package, that because they were like, okay, renewables got cheaper, we still bet on nuclear anyway, because we need some backup. So um, do you consider or have you considered basically presenting the renewables plus storage flexibility package and compare that to other options? Because I, I have a feeling that some they reluctantly accept the cost developments, but still don't find it suits their needs. You see what I mean? Yeah. So again, this is a little bit, I have a bit of a problem with this because what, essentially what they're saying is that the system needs more flexibility or support or, or clean um, grid dispatch and then projecting that onto individual projects or technologies, right? So they've taken what is a very, the right way to think about it, the system, and then they're saying you need to now provide all of those system, you know, characteristics, and that's not how the grid works. We don't ask nuclear to do that. You know, we don't ask individual gas plants to do that. The system, if you like, resiliency is really that. It's based on how the system works. So you kind of can't cheat, 
right? You have to look at with the electricity system because you have to deliver in real time against, you know, major contingencies. You have to do the system analysis. Um, and ideally, bringing in the demand side, right? Because that's another potential source of flexibility. And, you know, I would argue there's probably not a very good model that actually does that at this point in time. So, again, we have this limitation a little bit. Um, but but I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit against this idea that, okay, you have, to, you have to show a PV project with storage for it to be comparable, right? That's not how it works. If we asked gas a gas-fired power plant to do the same thing, you'd end up with the same result. Their, their LCOE would go up, right? Because they'd have to have backup or whatever. So, you know, and there are elements of this. That there are different parts of ancillary services and it would be less because, you know, flexible, flexible plants like CCGT can do some of that, right, that we would be asking at a system level. So it would go up less than, than a you know, a PV plant. But it's, it's really, it's a system problem. And if you start to think of it only from the individual technology perspective, you're reducing your options. Every time you reduce your options, usually that has a cost. You know, you know there's no free lunch. So the, the, the more holistically we think about the electricity system, including bringing in the demand side, then the lower the costs of integration, the higher the penetration. And again, we avoid that bias that there's often there of lacking ambition because we can't see how it can quite work, um, which is strange, right? Because we're, you know, now conducting this conversation, the four of us, you know, over the internet and, you know, it's an electricity system. I think we can manage. Hi, everyone. David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just €29, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. I'd like to um, maybe dig into the report a little bit that uh, that came out. I think at the end of the end of August, um, you said kind of across the board, wind and solar have uh, fallen by around another five percent. Uh, but a lot of that was a lot of that driver, a lot of that cost reduction was in China. It was the result of uh, China costs falling much more than I say across the world. We obviously talked about interest rates and other uh, factors playing into that around the world. Excluding China at this point, what is this, what's the sort of um, state of play for renewables, either maybe in Europe or North America or in um, without the impact of China's reduction? So China is and has been for a number of years, you know, the major market for deployment. So when we talk about our global numbers, they're a weighted average. So we weight it by capacity. So China increased its share of both uh, solar PV and onshore wind deployment last year, and it fell for offshore wind. And so the technologies that, that saw the costs fall were those where China increased its share. So for solar PV, it was quite significant. They went from 45% of all deployment to 55% commissioned. Um, and, and so that has an impact. So for onshore wind, because we there are now 
quite a lot of deployment in areas with very good wind resources like in the United States and in South America and so on. Basically, if you strip out China, the LCOE change would have been flat between 2021 and 2022. So that's effectively, like we were talking about, about a 7% nominal increase, for instance. Yeah? For PV, um, because as we also were talking about, there's a smaller lag in cost pass-through, the, the increase is much more significant. So if we strip out China and it's 55% share, cost the LCOE 21 to 22 went up by about um, 17, 18%. So it was very significant. Um, I discount a little bit the significance of that because there was very large price increases in Europe in 2023. So in France and Germany, the data, so the data we get is not as comprehensive as elsewhere in the world. Very tight confidential commerciality in Europe because the market is so competitive and so liquid. Um, but costs probably increased by around a fifth on average in Europe um, last year. But, I, but there was an incredible incentive to actually swallow all those cost increases because of the wholesale electricity prices. If you could, get a, if you could have got online in, say, March 2022, you know, you know, whatever the phrase is, you know, damn the damn the engines or whatever, you know, you could have recovered in the space of a year, like 10 years of capital payback, right, on your project. The rate of return would have been, you know, astronomical, right? So, so I discount a little bit 2022. I'm waiting to see what happens in 2023 because of that. Um, elsewhere, the same dynamic necessarily isn't in play, and we still saw real cost increases, but to a lesser extent. And of course, with the, you know, the the volatility of individual project costs, we still saw some markets that fell in real terms in 2022, but it wasn't the norm by any means. But I just want to also emphasize, right, we we looked to your point, Jan, about that, that uh, map of what's the cheapest. So I was a little bit, I have been for many years a little bit unhappy with our competitive comparison. So I've spent some time over the last couple of years building up a database of fossil fuel fire power projects and their costs. Uh, and so we had a much better, for 20 countries, we had a very good LCOE for fossil fuels. So in Europe, you know, the cost of electricity spiked for a new fossil fuel plant if you were taking 2022 prices by, you know, three times, right? So, you know, 20-odd cents per kilowatt hour. So the compet you know, despite the cost increases last year, the competitiveness actually jumped. Um, for, for PV, that jump was not a record because we had those ridiculous off-the-cliff falls in solar PV module prices between 2010 and 2013. But for onshore wind, 2021 and 2022 was the largest increase in competitiveness that we've seen. And that still holds if you dial it back to, say, 2021 fossil fuel prices, which might be a more reasonable expectation, say, in Europe, about a 15-year gas price, which you might make an investment on a CCGT on. Um, maybe you could explain well to me and also the listeners the phenomenon that 
the prices for solar can be too low because right now in Brussels is a very heated debate coming from this European solar power industry that basically say we are confronted to a situation where over this year, the module price have been falling by 25% and that that now represents a risk for the EU manufacturing industry. Uh, apparently, there was such a, how do you say, a oversupply, I guess, what you just described, right? After COVID, there was this boost to invest and that all the warehouses full, are full now. And that basically, their concern now is that the EU manufacturing cannot survive these low prices. Um, and then the second question, if I may, is this now the the... the, the the waves of development we can expect also in the future that it always goes into in this kind of cycles and and then how to deal with that then there's a great advantage from renewables so we're talking about solar pv and onshore wind in that um, even if you strip out equipment costs there's a lot of local content value that's being you know in the in in the overall cost stack um, and it's it tends to be a bit more for PV and a bit less for, for wind because of the nature of the, the contribution of the turbine cost to the total, which is higher than, say, the modular inverter for PV, which you can see this these in the report. Uh, so, first of all, there's, there's typically always, you know, a, an economic benefit from renewables relative to investing in, in fossil fuels because of that component. Now, China particularly for PV, obviously, we know the history, right? They went, they went all in, um, you know, a dec over a decade ago. Uh, and they're prepared to, you know, they're essentially prepared to fund, you know, gigawatt-scale manufacturing um, improvements uh, or investments. So they dominate the supply chain, right? So 80%, whatever it is globally, of, of modules. Uh, the point is, it's it's a little bit. So you could say, okay, there are elements of elements of what happens in China that there are direct subsidies to the manufacturers, particularly around uh, availability of finance uh, and the fact that sometimes it, that doesn't have to get repaid. Um, so they do have an advantage. But I always say I would never want to be in the solar PV industry. It's, I mean. How how do you ever compete? Because the technology, it's not just the fact you have to invest in gigawatt scale. The technology is cycling through because of the cost, the cost pressures from, and let's be clear, the cost pressures from European governments to squeeze down the cost of renewable energy because we don't value the other benefits. We just wanted the lowest cost possible. So there's a little bit of, you know, it's a little bit our own fault. Um, you know, you're cycling through a different cell architecture or, you know, maybe every, you know, three years now, right? So you, there's elements of the supply chain that only need relative reconfiguring, but it's not always the case because also the, the cell sizes are in, increasing or changing to eke out a little bit more efficiency. So, I mean, I'm happy, you know, Okay, so I'm talking personally here, not with my arena hat, not with my energy policy hat. I am happy that China is doing this because it's a crazy business to be want to be involved in. 
um, and expect to, to make a return on your capital. Um, putting my arena hat back on, it, we prefer a resilient supply chains. So we don't think it's necessarily healthy that China dominates the supply. Um, there's, there's a cost element to that. Um, but essentially, we have to understand that at, the, at this point in time, there's structural differences in the cost. And it's mostly in, in say, OECD countries. And it's mostly related to, to labor costs, um, com- you know, commodity costs, uh, electricity and gas and prices and so on, right? That China has a competitive advantage. We have to acknowledge that that is not going to be solved. You know, Europe can't outcompete those elements. So if we, if we want resilient supply chains, we want diversified supply chains, we have to have an honest discussion which says this is going to cost more. How much are we prepared to pay? Are we prepared to pay this for another 10 years so that people recover their capital? And, and, and I would insist that if you want to do that, you do not force that cost onto the cost of electricity because that shoots ourselves in the foot for the energy transition and you're ignoring, again, the, the, um, the environmental benefits, so the, the, the reduced climate costs, the reduced air pollution costs. And as we've learned painfully after 2022, energy security is real. And it has, there are real macroeconomic costs, which I'd love for someone to calculate, because I think that is a real, you know, that is a real benefit that we've never bothered to cost. We've talked about it abstractedly back in 2012 when we had had to sell it on that case, but we had a really, really sharp reminder that there are actually macroeconomic costs to these fossil fuel price shocks, which go beyond anything we usually consider in terms of benefits. Uh, so, you know, there is a solid economic case to have a more resilient, diversified supply chain. But if we want that, we have to be clear that it's a long-term investment. So China does this, right? They'll keep, inv- they'll keep sending money that way, right? Are we prepared to do that? Are you going to, you know, are politicians prepared to stand up and say to, you know, we have a business case for producing here. We see local economic benefits. We so see resiliency benefits. And it's going to cost us, but we think the benefits are worth it. Um, and then, yeah, as I said, please, please don't put the cost onto the electricity. Take that out general taxation somehow or from the fossil fuel producers, even better. Even um, better. Stop, you know, even better. Reduce those subsidies to fossil fuels, which still exist and run into tens of billions per year in most European countries. Michael, you mentioned prices there. And of course, last year, electricity prices in, in Europe really went through the roof uh, to, to levels unprecedented. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, one of the uh, frequent responses I get uh, on social media when I share the latest figures on renewable penetration in the world, based maybe on an arena study even, uh, is that people will say, um, oh, yeah, but um, yeah, what about electricity prices? If, if we have all these cheap renewables, why are they not coming down? And usually what people then share is a graphic from 2015 that someone <laughs> created where you see electricity prices 
especially in Germany, being very, very high. Usually they, they use household electricity prices rather than industrial. Uh, and then they plot the penetration of renewables against that. And it shows a correlation between the more penetration you have, the higher your prices are. Um, and, you know, of course, one of the arguments against that is that actually you should look at more recent data uh, and not use data that is already um, eight years old um, and also maybe not use household prices, but um, use other price metrics too. But um, from your perspective as an economist, um, sort of looking at this across the world, um, you know, what do you say? Um, what is the impact of lower cost renewables on electricity prices? Because let's be clear, you know, for consumers... For industry, uh, it doesn't really matter what the LCOE is of the technologies that feed into the electricity mix. For them, it matters what they pay when they get their bill, right? So um, are we seeing evidence of reduced um, prices for consumers caused by cheap renewables? And if not, why not? Yeah, very good question. Uh, and it's one that I don't think has been communicated very well. The first point I'd make, um, which is kind of more of a throwaway of unrelated to those kind of graphs that are shared, is that it's very rare that the actual ranking of countries in that comparison change through time, right? So those that were expensive still stayed expensive um, through time. So maybe the rate of increase was different. But that was also a policy choice. Like in Germany, obviously, the EEG law put that cost onto the consumer. Worse than that, it put it onto a narrow slice of consumers. It, it excluded, you know, industry which were um, exposed to international competition. But that was very broadly defined. And so, you know, we just asked consumers to share the burden of industry receiving uh, the benefits, actually. So it was kind of, you know, it, it isn't what I would have done, shall we say. Um, so the second point is, you know, there's a different, is the importance between stocks and flows, right? So today, you know, we have, and say for the last three or four years, right, when you're deploying new renewables in Europe, that brings down, you know, or keeps generation costs lower than they otherwise would. But given this policy choices we made in terms of support, we have a stock of um, investments which were much higher cost, right? Those were learning investments. There's an economic justification where you have, you know, these learning, high learning rates to there's a market failure. So there's a, there's a role for government to step in and say, we know this could be cheap. You're not going to do it because it makes no sense. We'll pay for the learning investments. And what we saw in 2022 was that those learning investments paid off, right? So, the renewable generation in Europe in 2022 reduced the fossil fuel import bill by 100, we estimated, you know, at least 176 billion US dollars, right? That's a lot of money. Now, that's not the net cost of that because, again, right, we're talking about the fact we had these learning investments. But that was, can you imagine the, the changes in balance of payments for a lot of, you know, European countries if we hadn't had that generation? Um, it would have been very significant. So we're still paying, you know, given these policy choices, we're still loading these learning investments onto consumers in a lot of cases. I mean, it's changed now in Germany, for, which is great. Um, 
But sh so the second point is, the third point, sorry, is that what hasn't happened so much is this reflection on the market structure and how that impacts prices to consumers. You know, so Irina and other people have been talking for, I don't know, a decade or more now about the importance of changing the regulatory and institutional frameworks around electricity markets to be fit for a situation where we have lots of low marginal or zero marginal cost um, generators. And because it, it's, so I think the easiest perhaps for your listeners is to compare what happened in France and what happened in Germany where I am. So I've lived in both countries, so um, it's also a little bit easier. So in France, they have all this low-cost nuclear, right? Because it's been amortized. They're having to pay significant monies to keep it up, run, up and running now. So it's actual, it's actual running costs are starting to get close to what the original cost they paid for. But that's fine because it's still relatively cheap. And the government made sure, makes sure that, the, that their costs are passed through at a reasonable level, right? So they kind of bypass the wholesale market. And that means the price increases French consumers saw was dramatically less in Germany, where the retailers are allowed to pass through based on the marginal cross pricing. So the, the most expensive plant in any 15-minute period. And with the tripling, you know, with, with gas prices being at one point, you know, averaging 12 times what they were in 2020, you know, we had this tripling, you know, into the 25, 26 cents US per kilowatt hour as a marginal price last year. Um, a 17, 18%, uh, sorry, 17 or 18 cent per kilowatt hour increase for the entire year over what it was pr previously. And I'm paying that. But that's because there's no, but what happened in Europe was that so we crunched the numbers because this is a real problem and we need to make people more aware of it. We crunched the numbers. The cash costs of the European electricity system. So, um, so I went from paying whatever it is, 32 cents to 50 cents at its peak. The cash costs of uh, the European electricity system, so this is averaging over everything, so it's not a good comparison to my experience, but increased by four to five US cents per kilowatt hour. But most consumers ended up paying that marginal price increase. So there were some people um, extracting a lot of value last year, whether that was utilities with higher profits or industry who had contracted forward for, for electricity or renewables, um, or indeed consumers, right? So that payback in France, you know, you know the renewables that they have deployed, even at a particularly onshore wind, were paying back billions last year to help reduce costs. And and sort of in Germany as well. Right? So it's a lot of what happened last a lot of pain that happened last year for industry and consumers could have been avoided. We can keep a wholesale electricity market with essentially real-time pricing for the efficiency of dispatch, but there's no reason why consumers have to pay that price. Right, we can average. We can use some kind of averaging, and that is one way that one way that we could get a better result. You know, for a, a system, electricity system with very high shares of renewable energy. Um, so, you know, 
there's some missed opportunities as well that we've learned from last year. Really interesting. As we get into higher penetrations of renewables, um, obviously, and the costs continue to fall, is there a bottom to this cost reduction? There must be a point where it becomes unsustainable. <laughs> yes, in theory. Um, so, But I can't tell you where it is because, as we've mentioned already, um, I haven't been very good at that up till now, and I don't think I will be moving forward. Uh, so, but, but we can talk a little bit about the relative potential, right, of different technologies. So onshore wind, you know, the, there has been um, very significant, so I should say this, the drivers of cost reduction have changed in the last 10 years for, for, for PV and onshore wind. So I'm going to stick to those two because we have better data there and I have a better understanding. Um, but the cost reduction drivers have changed through time. Um, for both solar PV and onshore wind, initially in the period, say, 2010 to 2015, 16, it was very much about the equipment costs, right? So very high cost reduction contribution to the, to the levelized cost of electricity. And for those of you that, you know, don't, I should say the levelized cost of electricity is our lifetime estimate of the cost taking into account the cost of capital. So this is designed to be something, you know, that's, that's robust. Uh, so it was mostly about the equipment, turbines, modules, inverters. Since then, um, in solar PV, what we've seen is higher contributions from balance of system costs. So things like electrical and mechanical installation, um, you know, racking and mounting systems, you know, even project development, land, right? So PV is a little bit weird. The efficiency of the PV module increases. You actually, what happens is you reduce the surface area required for the same wattage. So unlike, say, for a gas plant, where you increase the efficiency, you reduce your fuel use. With PV, you're reducing your capex. And a lot of your surface-related costs also decline with that. So there's a correlation to a greater or less extent with installation, with racking and mounting, with cabling. So 2016 to 2022, that started to play a more important role. In wind, that played a little bit more of an important role, but most of it came from the efficiency of higher hub heights, larger swept areas, um, having higher capacity factors, so higher annual production at the same site for the same wind resource than what we had, say, 10 years ago. So with PV, so that's a very – so with PV, what we can see still is a pathway to, to higher efficiency. So we can see – a continuation of those dynamics that we've seen since 2016, 2022. Wind is your, you know, some of your listeners will be aware, particularly for offshore, but also onshore to some extent, is having, starting to reconsider the idea that we go, keep going to bigger and, you know, higher hub heights and larger swept areas because of the supply chain, you know, issues. Uh, they're much more acute for offshore, um, but that's also, uh, because it's a smaller supply chain, and so it's quite easy to to end up with issues. Um, but it's the same onshore, you know. And so, you know, logic would tell me that I would expect a, a more sustained and continued cost reduction for solar PV compared to wind. Wind is already, I mean, in some cases, it's already very, very cheap 
Like so, in the US, you know, the the, the levelized cost of electricity now in the Midwest with their excellent wind resources is three cents per kilowatt hour. Right. So you're coming in. You know, this is getting very close to like, for instance, just the fuel and operating costs of a nuclear plant, or you know, or even a coal uh, for in a coal plant. It's it's less than their kind of fixed costs, you know, in some cases. So this is very cheap. So it's it's gonna get more difficult. Um, and if we stay in a high commodity price environment, wind is also more penalized because it uses a lot of steel, a lot of concrete, um, and it's also a bit more labor intensive. But but that's not such a big big issue. Um, but so, so there are risks, there are more risks around onshore wind, but I'm less worried about that because it's already very competitive. Solar PV, as I said, we see a pathway. It's going to continue. Um, and what we've seen globally, right, is more of a convergence towards competitive costs. People are getting better at replicating really low cost. So we've spent now 40 minutes talking and basically <laughs> the only renewables technologies came up were wind and solar. Yeah. Um, and I would like to, but if I look at Irina and the websites, you seem to be treating all renewables kits the same way. Yeah. Um, and I always struggled a little bit that that's what we are doing in the European Commission, right? Like bioenergy is the same as wind and solar. I would like to understand better how you're going about this because it's obvious that these kind of exponential cost developments, IT sector style, do not apply in the same way to bioenergy. Mm -hmm. um, do you have a, how do you communicate about this? Or yeah. are all renewables kits the same and you like them all the same way? Uh, I think there's, there's probably two things I would say here. First of all, I mean, I used to, in, in, in every presentation I made, I, you know, everyone wants to hear about solar and wind developments. But I'd always have a slide which says, don't forget about hydropower, renewable, uh, geothermal, and bioenergy. Um, so they, they are the more mature technologies. It's not that innovation is not taking place. Um, but as you highlighted, it, they're in a different, they're, they're much closer to a conventional, you know, thermal system in many ways um, than, you know, than, than solar and wind. So the cost reduction potentials, I mean, they exist, but we're not going to see any, any breakthroughs, essentially. Uh, hydropower, we've kind of seen the trend to, to increasing costs in terms of what's deployed globally because we're starting, to, even in Asia and Africa, to, to have built out the very good sites where you have the lower costs um, and, and better kind of um, water regimes. Uh, so, but the second point, I, you know, that we have to remember is the energy transition is not just power, right? So, you know, we also have to think about the end uses and, and we tend to overlook the role of sustainable bioenergy use um, in the end use sectors, uh, solar thermal, you know, for, for heat, um, as well. So there is a little bit of, um, yeah, a little bit of tunnel vision, I would say sometimes, and also a little bit of this risk of getting on the next kind of hype train as well, which, you know, obviously is, is green hydrogen, um, at the moment, you know, so, but the, 
maybe the big picture here is to say, like in our world energy transition outlook, you know, there's essentially two elements that will get us to to 1.5 degree pathway, and it's building out renewables uh, and energy efficiency. Now, it, it's a little bit more complicated because the fact that we now have very competitive renewable electricity. Uh, allows us to unlock decarbonisation through electrification. Um, if that, if we hadn't have succeeded on renewables, honestly, I would say that that 1.5 degrees would never be have been possible in any reasonable cost. So it would have been a very hard societal choice. We already have one right now, but it would have been quite, you know, much much more difficult. Uh, so that focus, right, is. You know, we need to really think beyond, you know, power, obviously, and look at how we're decarbonizing the end use sectors, how we bring in the flexibility, as already mentioned, of the demand side to help manage um, the electricity system with high shares of variable renewables. Um, and for things like EV charge, you know, EVs, we're never going to get to like a, a fully electrified light duty vehicle fleet without smart charging. It's just not going to happen, you know. and and, you know, but we have, that's not a problem that the electric utilities are unfamiliar with. They don't like peak peaks on their system. They're really expensive, right? So they've, they've often been in the past very creative about how to avoid that. You know, in New Zealand, I grew up with ripple control on the, the hot water system, right, in 1970, right? So, you know, but, but this idea, I mean, we really... If we're going to keep 1.5 degree in play, we really need to start thinking ahead a bit more. Right. And well, speaking of looking ahead and, and trying to stay within the 1.5 uh, degree of warming goal, how do you think this report and your work and the cost analysis and the reduction of um, renewables, cost of renewables, is going to play perhaps at the COP28 discussions uh, later this year and moving forward at government and international negotiations? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd make an observation first in that I think policymakers still haven't quite grasped how much individuals in an industry have had it rammed in their face last year that renewables are cheap and hedge against fossil fuel price volatility. So I think policymakers haven't quite grasped the appetite, you know, for from individuals and industry. I think that's a, an opportunity that's going a little bit begging um, and I'd like to see a little bit more in effort on that. But I think so the, the challenge we have at COP28 in some ways is that because it's a global, essentially a global consensus, there's a lot of very competing interests. And so often the, what gets focused on becomes quite narrow. The good news is that for COP28, um, the president, uh, the the host country, is getting behind this idea of a tripling of renewable power generation capacity by 2030, which is consistent with with what we have in the world energy transitions outlook. So, as I mentioned, my personal opinion is that that's actually the critical path to keeping 1.5 degree in play because of the electrification side of things, and so. You know, as I mentioned, there's a lot of other work to do, but if we can come away with with a commitment around that globally, plus the follow-on, you know, which is the enabling 
the enablers, the policy environment, the institutional regulatory changes that also needs to happen, then I think that would be positive progress because I think there'll be a lot of contentious discussions um, this year. We're coming to the end of our time together today. I just uh, One thing we'd like to ask all of our guests is if they could look into their crystal ball, uh, what does the energy landscape look like in 10 to 20 years' time? So there was someone said, and I've repeated it a lot because I was an energy modeler, right? So, And when you do energy modeling, it allows you to be wrong in a very precise way. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so my vision over the years, I've I have um, kind of given up envisaging what the energy system will look like in ten years. So there are things that I would hope to see from it. Um, so I would hope to, one of the key things that I'd hope to see is obviously this build out of renewables because I believe it's the only the only realistic way that we have to get emissions down by 2030. The second thing that I really, really believe in is the fact that that we need to see very rapidly much more demand-side integration with the electricity sector. I'm convinced that once, you know, with, with all the digital, you know, wireless communications that we have today, you know, the smart people that want to make little businesses about optimizing different end-used, you know, uh, end uses and the technologies that provide them, that with a little bit of effort, we can unlock an awful lot of flexibility on the demand side. And I don't see the attention there to that. And, and I wonder if it's not just because there aren't enough energy, failed energy modelers like myself that like have had to figure out, right, you know, how much a kettle uses when you turn it on and stuff like that. What concerns me then is that, you know, when we miss all these little opportunities, it increases the cost, it slows things down. We find new problems, right? Because we haven't been looking for solutions. So that's kind of my, you know, my hope for 2030 is an electricity system that is, you know, it used to be a one-way conversation, right? Supply side, dumping into the demand side. I want to see a two-way equal partnership in 2030. And I think if we can achieve that, I'd be very happy. Absolutely. Very interesting. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on What Matters today. Before we go, uh, I'd like to quickly go around the table and ask what caught my eye this week. Uh, Jan, uh, can we start with you perhaps? What caught your eye? Uh, sure. What caught my eye was um, the 44th independent study on um, hydrogen for heating, concluding that it should not play a very big role. Um, that was a new study by Imperial College. Um, and if you're interested, I tweeted about it um, um, yeah, earlier this, this week, I think it was. So um, uh, that that's what I... Um, um, have come across um, yeah, since Absolutely. the last recording. Yeah, the, the evidence stacks up. Uh, Michael... What caught your eye this week? Yeah. Uh, the UK Office of Budget Responsibility put out in July, it seems, a uh, an interesting report on the fiscal risk and sustainability. And they did something very interesting with the energy prices. Um, often you will see sensitivity as an upper and lower bound. They included uh, 10 or 15-year spikes and gas prices, which I thought um, has really elevated the debate a little bit. And um, I was delighted to see it. Absolutely. Yeah, interesting. I guess kind of taking on the lessons of the last couple of years and the uh, last couple of decades. Yeah. 
Yeah, interesting. Uh, Michaela, what caught your eye this week? Um, I like this point Michael was making. I think it's really we've been treating renewables and other fossils uh, very differently in the past as to their wider economic benefits. I really like this this new approach of thinking. Um, okay, I tried not to pick up something related to our event and conference. Um, a study on what the impact could be if we reduced meat and dairy consumption. Uh, and basically by half, I think the study said, and then you could see the long-term effect was basically we are, we, we would, uh, neutralize all the, the environmental, uh, bad effects significantly, starting with the GHG, uh, you know, also through land use change, but everything like fertilizer use, water use. Very interesting, I found. I mean, uh, if we think power systems were difficult, I think this is a whole new <laughs> this is a whole new game, the agriculture decarbonization. Yeah, absolutely uh, a fascinating area of the energy transition. That one, uh, Kira, our producer, what caught your eye this week? Well, mine was more what didn't catch my eye because Brussels had its car-free day. Uh, which is amazing because you notice how quiet it is. Oh my God. And you yeah. notice how easily kind of everyone moves on the road when everyone goes a bit slower. That being said, you really have to look out for bikes on that day um, <laughs> because there were definitely some kids on bikes who did not quite know how the road works. But yeah, I think it's really interesting that Brussels still does this, but it's very much kind of one day in a year and it's still quite a trivial thing. So it's interesting how the conversation always goes around whether we want to do it more. And do you think it works? I, I think it works. It's always difficult to tell because I think it works as a, novel as a day out, but I'm not sure whether it would work unless you started bringing in a lot more infrastructure for people. Like, I just think of people who, you know, maybe elderly people who need to do their shopping. Like, if we had it more often, we would really need to work out how to be very inclusive about mm, it. Absolutely. Uh, and from my end, uh, well, I can not notice uh, the UK government's U-turn on green targets earlier this week, uh, pushing back uh, internal combustion engine ban uh, back another five years in line with the rest of Europe, but uh, still um, bit showing less ambition uh, than before uh, and uh, the heat pump targets and banning a load of policies that were never policies in the first place, which was an interesting one. Um, so the seven, the seven bins. bins and the not the seven on, sins, the seven taxes bins. on taxes on meat <laughs> and uh, various other things. So, yeah, odd odd couple of days here in the UK for that one, um, but we'll see how that all plays out over the coming months. Um, that's all we have time for. My thanks goes to Michael, uh, Jan, Michaela, and our producer Kira for joining us this week. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we've said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Dave W underscore Foresight. Michael, uh, M T A Y L O R underscore N Z. Although it remains to be seen how long I last. Mm, true, true. Jan, I'm on Jan Rosenau and Michaela. It's a just insane one. If you have any questions for the team, you can also tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you again next time.